Hello there, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Ipswich Basketball Podcast with your host Rob Shatton. And we're bringing you the last of our weekly podcasts this week. The Ipswich Basketball Podcast was initially designed to give our members and our fan base something to listen to and something to interact with the club with as we went through the unprecedented and very surreal environment of having basketball taken away from us for a few months. Fortunately, as we're about to hear, the club is now on the verge of returning to some kind of normality and we expect within the next two months that we'll be able to start delivering training sessions to teams uh, rather than bubbles of players. So with that being said, we'll be moving from a weekly to maybe a monthly, maybe a more sporadic uh, format of the Ipswich Basketball Podcast. We'll still be bringing you content and we'll still be trying to do it fairly regularly. But... For our last weekly instalment, we've decided to get the main man himself as a coach, and he needs very little introduction, so I think we'll jump straight into it. You are now listening to the Ipswich Basketball Podcast. Nick Drain, welcome to the Ipswich Basketball Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Rob Shatton, thank you for having me on. No problem. It's it's um, it's a shame we couldn't be your first podcast of lockdown, actually. You've been a man in demand. Well, I think people know that I'm a professional talker, Rob. So if, they, uh, if they're getting uh, you know, a bit bored, ask Nick a couple of questions and I'll waffle on for an hour or so. So uh, I don't know whether it's a good thing or not. It must have been good to have something like podcasts to uh, to do in the, the interim four months that we've had without basketball. This must be the longest you've gone without coaching a session in a very long time. Um, in probably 24 years, Rob. 24 years is the longest period of time without organised basketball in my life. So, um, yes, I've got uh, epic withdrawal symptoms. So, um, you know, there's been, there's been quite a lot of professional development going on um, a surprising amount of uh, sort of planning and preparation and obviously dealing with back to play and how we're going to manage that both as an academy and as a club and obviously I'm involved on various panels with the, the governing body as well so I have to um, throw my oar into those discussions as well um, and so uh, you know, the sort of reoccurring theme is that we come up with an idea we think is really good and then we rip it up or three days later because there's some new news on what's going on with COVID. So it's been a strange time, but, uh, you know, the, the majority of the world seems to be worse off than, than I am right now during the uh, the, the, the pandemic. So I, I, I'm very grateful. A lot of people have talked about, obviously, working from home, being away from their normal routine, having more time to either reflect on how they spend their lives or find new ways to spend time. Have you picked up any new hobbies? I've tried to get out on the golf course once that was allowed. Um, I, I, I got worse somehow at golf over the, the last six weeks since golf was allowed. I, I, I beat you quite comfortably, Rob, six weeks ago and lost to you today, which was a, probably the low point of lockdown, frankly, um, for me. Um, uh, I, I think something else that, that you know, I've, I've, I like, <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work this out, but I like my food. And uh, I, I've enjoyed the, um, the, the time that I've been able to spend uh, experimenting with some recipes and cooking for my family. Um, I've had more dinners with my wife and kids in 2020 than I probably had in 2017, 18 and 19 combined. So that's been an absolute uh, blessing. Um, I found myself doing my garden, which is a crazy thing for, for someone with uh, anyone who knows me well would think the last thing I'd ever anticipate Nick Drain doing would be in his garden on his hands and knees pulling up weeds and, and planting uh, various things. And um, yeah, so I've I've made use of lockdown in terms of being a, a better dad and a better husband. I think that's probably the single biggest achievement that I've I've enjoyed during this time. But not much of a better golfer. Somehow I. Well, you haven't got any better, Rob, so I must have got worse. 
See, I was I was debating whether or not I was going to bring it up, but you've done it for me, which is great. So yeah, I lost to my brother as well. I beat him twice previously in lockdown. Um, so I've <laughs> just got worse. Obviously, as we get towards middle of July, end of July, and into the summer, we are now mercifully at the at the stage where we've started to be able to get limited basketball activity underway again. What's it been like being able to get into the gym, see your academy players again and, and work out some elite sessions? It's been, it's been nothing short of amazing. I think that, um, you know, you, you could be really sort of uh, psychological about it and start talking about, you know, it's really good to see which players have used this time to add something to their game. Or it's, it's really good to tell who's been working on their game. The reality is no one's ever experienced anything like this before. So I, I haven't gone into these sessions as a, as a sort of a, a, a test who's done the work, it's just been utterly brilliant to get on a court, um, see them, because uh, we spend a, uh, an insane amount of time together you know, as a coaching staff and, and with the players, particularly the academy players. You know, six days a week during the season is what I, I spend with, with particularly the girls and the women uh, players. And, and to, to have not seen any of the boys or the girls for, for four months has been crazy. Um, you know, to do some sessions and see that I can still coach this game and that they can still play it. But what's been fantastic is we're in, you know, coming to the tail end of week two of being able to do some indoor bubble sessions, as we're calling them, in, in groups of six. And they're, 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 they're evidently getting better very quickly. A um, couple of the players in particular jump out at me that, you know, have just made huge strides in a really short period of time and don't seem to have gone backwards during lockdown. So, um, it's just really exciting to be back on the court and it's great to see people. It's great to be working with Adam and, and, and Harriet and, and the coaching staff, John York, you know, Dave Williams, everybody really. It's just great to be back. Um, it's even nice to see Dave King, to be honest. And we should emphasise, obviously we'll get on to the club generally in a bit, we should emphasise that at the moment the, um, the, the COVID rules are the elite players, i.e. those who are... Um, sort of paid to play or those who are in academy, elite academy environments, they're the yeah, ones so who are allowed to train indoors, right? Yeah, so it's essentially players that either have a professional contract, um, they are part of the elite academy and are part of the England development pathway within that, so essentially kids that are on the DICE programme, um, or Great Britain internationals. So we've been really lucky to have Caleb Fuller coming in and, and joining in and, and setting the tone very much with the uh, the boys at the sessions and he's also hung around and helped out with the girls sessions. So when you've got, you know, a mid-major division one college starter, you know, working out with, with, with kids in it, so it's just pretty cool. And then, um, you know, Harriet will, will, will lead sessions, but also quite often end up lacing their boots up and joining in as well. So, the, you know, with the two of the top players to ever play for Ipswich and to ever come out of our program in those sessions, it's, it's awesome for the academy kids to see them putting the time in on their craft. So looking forward as we go over the next uh, what, probably month to two months, can you tell us much about um, Basketball England's return to play um, strategy and, and where you think we might see some basketball activity as much as I can expect you to have a crystal ball? I mean, I, mean, I, I think my, 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 my first thing would be to uh, err on the, the side of caution with regard to government advice versus and alongside the Basketball England advice. And what I mean by that is, please don't assume that because the government have announced that, that as of the 25th of July, indoor sports and sports centres will be open, that does not mean that Basketball England are going to necessarily move to stage two of the back-to-play roadmap. And, and so, please don't be disappointed if it's, it's another month or so um, before... Basketball England allow any uh, structured activity indoors to take place. I, I, I only say that to protect our, our members and, uh, and our sport. Uh, you know, Basketball England have you know been a leading light in terms of their back to play roadmap. They've been commended by other sports. You know, several other better funded sports are way behind us um, in terms of getting their sport back on on court and organised. So. Yeah, I think that we need to be patient and I appreciate that we've been patient for four months. But I do think that, um, you know, we need to stand by our governing body and, and, and listen and learn and, and, and be, you know, vigilant with our our rules and, and, and making sure that when we do start doing stuff again, I mean, we've started doing some, some 
community stuff on the outdoor courts, for example, that it's going to be a very, very new normal. Sessions won't look the same to start with. You know, you're going to have to bring your own ball and you're going to have to, you know, not be allowed to pass for an entire session. And, and you know, you're going to have to stop every 10 to 15 minutes and wash your hands. And you're, you know, we're going to have to shut the court down afterwards and wash the floor and wash the backboards and wash the hoops. And, you know, it's going to be a very, very, very slow transition. And I think for some reason, and I think, I mean, I was certainly guilty of it. I do think that people thought that, you know, the government were suddenly going to say, as of this date, lockdowns lifted, fireworks would go off and life would go back to normal. That's not going to be the case. This is going to be a very, very, very uh, long-winded process. So um, I think that we've got to be prepared for the long run. And that when, when basketball does start again, it's not, you know, Copleston's not going to have 250 people in there on a Saturday afternoon anytime soon. And I think we've got to be ready for that. But the most important thing is there are you know, moves being made to get the kids back on the court playing basketball and, and, and chasing their dreams again. And I think that um, I would be thinking that we need to be thinking as a club and as a sport more towards the end of August, start of September before we're doing any team practices. Um, but what better time of year to be, you know, picking up a ball and going down the park and working on your game outdoors. This might not be a fair question to ask you as, as the club head coach because you're not the chairman or the treasurer, but we have seen quite a few clubs already up and down the UK express concerns about their position and their long-term security. What can you say about Ipswich's ability to compete in 2021 and beyond? Uh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine because the club has... Um, been run very, very well for a number of years. That's not to say other clubs haven't, by the way. We've been very, 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 very careful with our money. We've always been very self-sufficient in terms of being able to operate uh, as a club on, on, on our membership fees and fundraising. And um, that's not to say it's going to be easy, but the club was in a, in, in a position to take a massive hit financially in the last four months. You know, we're talking about, you know, in the thousands, double figures in the thousands of, of, of a loss of income. But, you know, that that is something that we, you know, Dan Fisk does a phenomenal job as our, as our treasurer and Matt Little does a phenomenal job as our secretary and Simon Drain does a phenomenal job as our chairman um, and, and, and their predecessors. So, so Catherine and Lorraine and Liz Winter also put the club in, in a very, very um, secure position financially. Uh, and I don't really go near that stuff. You know, I tend to ask for money and, and, and for various projects and, and stuff. But uh, I don't sort of look at the balance sheet every week or anything like that. But I know that we are, while we've taken a massive hit, we're in good shape. And, um, you know, we will be entering a team in every age group. Uh, we had intended in, on, on, on entering a couple of teams in a couple of age groups just for uh, catering for the masses. But we're not going to be able to do that because obviously we're going to have um, coaches are going to have a far bigger level of responsibility than ever before to meet you know, certain sort of expectations in terms of COVID, screening, um, social distancing, management of practices. Um, so we are, you know, I would imagine we're in better shape than most clubs, but we're not in great shape. But uh, we, will, we will be fine. I don't want to go too much further down the sort of doom and gloom route. So one of the highlights of basketball lockdown, if you can call it that, was obviously the documentary that everybody has been talking about for months now. And it feels a little bit after the fact, maybe to get your um, reactions to it. But I know you're a little bit of a Michael Jordan fan, sort of deep down under the surface. So <laughs> what did you make of The Last Dance? Um, I just think that uh, I lived through Michael Jordan's career. So, yeah, that was when I was falling in love with the game. And, yeah, he was the most iconic athlete on the planet in the 90s. And he he's one of the few athletes that lived up to the hype, you know, that was, was better than advertised. And I thought that the last dance sort of really captured that, that this guy was almost the, the perfect competitor in terms of his... Yeah, physical advantages were, were very obvious. Um, he, he had a, a you know a supreme edge in terms of his competitive nature. He was uh, a great leader. I know there's been some debate on on his leadership style and whether that that, that could be deemed to be you know intimidating, uh, you know, or dare I say bullying. 
But I, I, I think that for me, it captured this damn near perfect sportsman. Um, and for me, it was a bit of a trip down memory lane. Uh, and I was just so pleased that the youth of today, you know, the young people that watch and, and, and play and love this sport that we love so much, were able to watch the greatest of all time uh, and, and see why he's the greatest of all time. Because obviously we live in a generation where there's so much more access to professional athletes than there was in the 90s. So social media has enabled us to, you know, we all feel like we know LeBron James. We all feel like we know you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, we all feel like we know Usain Bolt. We, you know, Michael Jordan was, was an unknown quantity off the court, a very private guy. But what was pleasing for me, and I'm a little bit smug about it, is the majority of the people, you know, the young people in particular that had this sort of LeBron, the greatest player ever to play the game, uh, opinion, I've, I've come to me and said, yeah, coach, you, 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 you're right, aren't you? This, this Jordan guy's a, a different breed. So I just think, yeah, I would... I would advise everyone in our club, everyone who claims to be a fan of basketball, to watch that that, that, that program because it's it's breathtaking. Must have been really enjoyable for you. I know, obviously, for me, like I haven't really watched much '90s basketball before. Obviously, being a you know very young child during the '90s, I, I didn't see that much of it. You, um, probably, it was probably like going back to your sort of basketball fandom childhood really, because you were watching that era. It was. Um, I mean, I, I just, me and my brother Simon used to go and uh, play on the driveway and we would play, you know, one-on-one and he'd be Michael Jordan and I'd be Penny Hardaway. And we would, you know, play the 21 and, and, and it, we'd be copying that player's moves and whoever was Jordan would win. It was weird. It was almost like that, that was the level of this guy's sort of spell that he was able to put everybody under. Um, you know, and, and I just, you know, we, I was going to say we, we grow old too fast, but I mean, you know that better than anyone, Rob. But, um, you know, we, um, you know, you blink and you're in your late 30s, early 40s and, 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 and seeing Michael Jordan as a 57-year-old man, you know, it was quite, quite sad. But also I'm, I'm looking at it and just thinking this guy, just getting to relive the, you know, the, the innocence of just being wowed by a basketball player. Because I struggle to watch basketball now and not be a coach. Uh, and, you know, I, I go and watch the club games. I, even when I watch basketball on TV, I struggle to not be studying it and trying to learn something. Uh, and that really took me back and it was lovely. Is that when you're, so when you're watching NBA now? Or when you're watching EuroLeague, for instance, or say the Olympics is on? Do you ever find the ability to just go back and think, and these guys are good. Um, I, I, the NBA, I mean, one of my, I mean, me, me and Adam Robinson talk about this and it's quite funny because we, we're like, I, one of the things that I find a lot of old nonsense, to be honest, is when uh, people post stuff on Twitter and they talk about, you know, I love it when people do it with EuroLeague or when they do it with college basketball and they go, look at this coach. This coach is renowned for running this action to get this player an open look in this position. And then they do it with the NBA and you think, yeah, but, it's not the same because you know, that guy's just got the ball to James Harden and he's scored because he's better than everybody else. <laughs> you know, So when you watch <laughs> the NBA, for me, I am just about able to look at it and go, man, Russell Westbrook's fun to watch. You know, man, Ke- Kevin Durant's just a freak. Like, you, it, you know, if, you, if you're watching Kevin Durant play basketball or LeBron James or Ben Simmons or Kyle Leonard and you're breaking down the, you know, the, the tactical, technical stuff. You're missing out, man. Just appreciate, just appreciate how sensational these guys are and, and at the peak of any professional sport, quite frankly. But, you know, when, when I watch um, EuroLeague, sort of the tactical, technical stuff seems to be more, more, more sophisticated. But that might be as well because the athletes are not quite the same. There's you less know, of a I, gap between top and bottom, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But, you know, for me, I, st- I still like watching, you know, old NBA games in the 90s where you're watching Jordan just take over the game. And he's clearly just looked at Phil Jackson and said, yeah, yeah, screw the offence this afternoon. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get 50. Or watching Shaq. I mean, Shaq's probably my second favourite player ever. And, you know, there ain't, there ain't, no, there ain't no defensive schemes that work there. You've got a guy that weighs 26 stone 
that can run 100 metres in about 11 seconds and he's just crawling all over the, the basket and, and the three guys that are trying to stop him. You know, there's no, um, there's no great X's and O's there. So yeah, I, I think I, I try to be a fan with the NBA, but I, I, I still try. I still, I still find it fascinating. You know, when coaches use their timeouts and then what, what, what's coming next, I think is, is always fascinating to try, to, to try and learn from. We're going to get onto favourite players, I think, in a minute. But just while we're on coaches, is there one coach you've looked at and thought I really like that? Is there one coach that sort of had a bit of an influence on how you coach or the <clears throat> schemes you use? Alex Ferguson. Not a basketball coach. I just uh, how how if you if you're a teenager in the nineties in England, you will have been you'll either have loved watching Manchester United and learning and, and, and listening and watching sort of the, the way Ferguson reinvented himself as a coach repeatedly, and how he managed to challenge and get the best out of players that other managers and coaches wasn't able to. You know what what he did with. Eric Cantona, what he did with Roy Keane, what he did with Beckham, you know, the, the, the list goes on. And I, I've read Ferguson's books and I've watched documentaries about Ferguson and I just think that um, he was the last of a dying breed of coaches, which is the old school disciplinarian. You know, he, he was the boss. Everyone did it his way, but he was intelligent enough and had the emotional intelligence and the, and the sort of the, 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 the know-how to get the best out of each individual differently very consistent in the way that he was a manager and that he was totally inconsistent. And what I mean by that is no two players are the same. And he knew that. So I, I've, I've never watched a coach and, and thought I'm going to be like that coach. But um, the most influential sports coach in my lifetime is, is Alex Ferguson. And then as a 90s basketball fan, it was, uh, it was tough to not be uh, impressed by Phil Jackson but I'll always argue. Phil Jackson was incredible. He's got a case to be the greatest basketball coach of all time. But you know what? He had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant in a 15-year window. It's not a bad group of players to have, you know, available to you if you do want to win some games. You know, and, and Phil Jackson did some stuff like Ferguson. You know, Ferguson connected with Cantona when nobody else could. Phil Jackson connected with Dennis Rodman when no one else could. Um, you know, two flawed geniuses that that you know, if managed correctly, were 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 winners. And I think that um, yeah, I, I if someone said to me, "Who's your favourite sports coach of all time?" I'd say it's Alex Ferguson. I wouldn't say a basketball coach. I was just going to draw that comparison, uh, Rodman to Kenton, possibly slightly more extreme in Rodman's case. I don't, I don't know if there's another coach though that would have the confidence to let their player disappear to Vegas in the middle of a final series. Just coaching genius well uh, a genius but it wouldn't be allowed to happen now because of social media and no, that's true the the you know i would dread to think what was going on in all sports teams in the 90s and then <laughs> and, and you know, further back you know back to your era rob in the sort of you know 30s and 40s yeah there we go <laughs> <laughs> uh, i tried to steer away from that earlier but it's come back around yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You beat me at golf. What can I say? <laughs> you gave a, a pretty good list of Phil Jackson's uh, sort of top several players that he worked with. What's your top five NBA players? And I'm torn out to do this. I think we're going to have to limit to position. What's well, so the best player by position? Well, the the best point yeah, guard. Best or your favourite? Okay. Well, I mean, the, the, the best. Yeah, the best and favourite. Uh, Point guard, I think if anyone's got anyone other than Magic Johnson, they're, um, they, they don't know the game. Um, obviously, the two guard, again, it's, it's Jordan. I mean, if it's not Jordan, it's Kobe. God rest his soul. But there wasn't one part of the game that Kobe did better than Jordan. So, um, as, as heartbreaking as, as what happened to Kobe Bryant and, and, and how tragic that is, you know, he doesn't quite crack my, my all-time top five. Um, small forward I'd, I'd, I'd take LeBron James I'm an enormous Larry Bird fan I became a basketball fan at the tail end of Larry Bird's career I think the two best forwards of all time are Larry Bird and LeBron James I think LeBron James's uh, longevity and his resume is just uh, you know quite remarkable quite frankly at power forward you've got to have Tim Duncan even though um you know, I, I, like I say, I, I, if I could, I'd play Bird at the four, and, I, and I'd probably 
bring Tim Duncan off the bench because I think Tim Duncan um, is you can't argue that he's the he's not the greatest power forward of all time. But I I yeah I don't think Tim Duncan's prime or the peak of Tim Duncan's powers are, are, are quite where Larry Bird's were or certainly LeBron James's. And then at centre, I'm going to have Shaq because he's my guy. And, and Shaq was the first superstar rookie when I was uh, a basketball fan. So um, Shaq came into the league when I was 11 years old and I watched his career from start to finish. I've always had this obsession with Giants. Uh, my mum and dad will tell you that, that when I was a little boy growing up, I was um, obsessed with my granddad because he was six foot three and I always wanted the you know, the, the biggest toy and I always want, you know, the biggest this, the big, you know, and, 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 you know, when I started coaching basketball, I was obsessed with finding big players and helping big kids play. So Shaq came along and he was this, um, he was almost like a comic book character, you know, because he was just bigger and stronger and more athletic than everybody. So, you know, the, 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 there's obviously a very a strong argument that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the, in inverted commas, greatest centre of all time, but Shaq's about 120 pounds heavier than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar if they're both in their prime. And I just, I, I don't see how Kareem's stopping him. And people can talk about that skyhook all day long and say that it was unguardable. I just don't feel like Kareem's stopping Shaq dunking it. Uh, and I think Shaq dunks it. Well. Yeah, and I think Shaq's dunking at a higher percentage than Kareem, uh, Kareem's skyhook. So, yeah, to me, yeah, I, I would have, I, I, yeah. If I can be slightly creative with the positions, I'd have Bird and LeBron. But if we're having to go uh, by the book, I'd have I'd have LeBron Duncan. But um, I think the other, for me personally, the other spots pick themselves really. Let's bring it closer to home then. We've set up your NBA all-time five. We need a team for them to play against. So let's pick an IBC all-time starting five. So I need some, I'm obviously definitely in the course of some offence here, Rob. So I need some clarity on the criteria. Are we talking men's? Are we talking women's? Are we talking, you know, are we talking about them relative to their, their own league that they're playing in? Because, um, you know, there's some, there's, there's quite a few names propping up in my head and, and, and some of them, you know, pound for pound, it, you know, relativity comes in here. So I'll give you, I'll give you the choice. We can either do a combined one, or, or I'll give you uh, men's and women's fives. Uh, and yeah, we're talking about the environment that they played in, but also there needs to be some kind of comparison to the other IBC players you're putting them against. Well, this this is good, right? So, so last year, Danny Manning came and sat in my office, and there was myself, Danny Manning, and Harriet Wellham, and. Uh, Danny brought up the topic of a um, an all-time Ipswich basketball club draft. So we sat in my office and uh, we said, if you were doing an all-time Ipswich basketball club draft, who would you take with the number one pick? And I said, right, well, I'm the head coach, so I get the first pick. And uh, I took Harriet Wellham with the number one pick. I said, as an Ipswich player, Harriet Wellham's the most dominant player we've ever had in this current sort of modern era. So Harriet had the second pick. And with the second pick, and again, we're talking about relative to their competition. Harriet took, with the second pick, Ethan Price. And I sort of raised my eyebrows at this a little bit. I was like, okay, Ethan's, Ethan's amazing. But this is, we're talking a year ago now. We're not talking this season. Just gone doesn't count. Great um, podcast guest. Yeah, great. Yeah. I love Ethan. Um, and, and I was like, okay, well, Ethan's a great pick, you know. And with the third pick, Danny Manning took Rory Winter. I love Rory Winter. Rory came to the centre of excellence. Rory had one of the great junior careers through the through the club. Was a, was a, <clears throat> a great academy player, a great servant to the senior team, and he's now doing really good things over at the University of Essex. There's no way in Mary Hell that, that, that Rory Winter is the third draft pick. And Rory knows this because I've obviously told him. So this then sparked me writing uh, a list of the, the, the top 50 Ipswich players <laughs> during my time of, at the club. So the reason why I'm saying this is this criteria is, 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 has to be relevant. So if, okay. we're doing an, if we're doing an all-time Ipswich team, 
my my I'm going to do it as how good they were for Ipswich, as opposed to what they went on to achieve. Does that make sense? So you yeah, take someone like. Sense. You're famed for liking quite short rotations. You're famed for liking sort of seven, eight-man rotations. I'm surprised you had 50 names to write down. Oh, no. I, yeah, I've coached a lot of players, Rob. I've coached a lot of players. <laughs> so, so, you know, someone like Caleb, because I talked to Caleb about this and he and I got into a, a, a very, very well-humoured debate. I said, Caleb might be, probably is the best boy to come out of the Ipswich programme. Obviously went to Barking, did great things there. They were... Uh, a huge part of his journey as well. Caleb is playing at the highest level any Ipswich player boy has ever played at. But Caleb wasn't the dominant Ipswich player that Lee Hodges was. So at the five, um, I am going to take the big fella. Um, I'm going to take Lee Hodges. I think uh, as an Ipswich player, I mean, at the four and, 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 I'm not really sure if this is her position. It's probably not. She's really a three, but I'm going to play her at the four. At the four, I'm going to have Esther Little. I think that the club, uh, you know, is, is is looking at one of the, well, probably unquestionably the best junior career any player's ever had. I mean, I think we worked out that Esther's won eight national titles in the last three years. You know, for, for Ipswich, and 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 she's 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 not bad, is she? So relative to her competition, Esther's pretty pretty exceptional at the four. Um, ooh, at the three, at the three, give me Luke Maskell right. Um, probably the most entertaining, most exciting player. One of the most exciting players we've ever had. Um, I always felt coaching Luke right through the junior ranks, and he he was my national championship winning captain when he was 13 years old so he has a you know he has a seat at the top table uh, of, of any Ipswich uh, conversation like this um, but for me Luke um, I always felt like we had a chance to win a game if Luke was playing at the two I'm, I'm taking Hazza you know ultimate ultimate competitor ultimate winner ultimate big game player the only Ipswich player that's you know won multiple senior national Player of the Year awards. I mean, this goes on with Has. I think it, I think Has might, might might be the best player. Certainly, in, I, I always say in my time because in the in the eighties and nineties, Laura Sheming was playing, Sally Kaznica was playing, you know, Angela Orbis was playing. There were <clears throat> there was players before my time involved at the club that were you know massive players for the club. But during my time, I think I, I think you're hard pushed to find a, a more dominant Ipswich player and a more impactful Ipswich player um, than, than Harriet. <clears throat> and then at the point guard, I'm going to, um, I'm probably going to, again, probably cheat a little bit and play someone not out of position, but I'm struggling here. I'm struggling and, and I may be missing people as well, but I'm going to, I'm going to flip a coin between Ashley Pink and Sam Newman um, as my point guard, because um, again, Sam, was uh, an amazing player, point guard on a championship team, had a good junior career, uh, was a national player of the year in the academy. You know, I think Sam was pretty special. But, you know, if I had to pick a team to go to war with, Ashley would be right at the top of my list. Incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking, a very special young woman. And I'm doing all this talking, Rob, and, and, and... and it is occurring to me that Ethan Price's name hasn't come out of my mouth, and um, that is there's a, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that I was, uh, but it's hard well, because we've had some extremely talented teams. And Ethan, Ethan is Ethan's probably the best boy to ever play for IBA, but Ethan hasn't quite yet had that breakout season at senior level that, that Sam Newman did, and 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 Luke, you know, and you know. Ethan's Ethan's on another level, quite frankly. So, um, honourable mention is Ethan, and 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 I would, I, I think that by the time I've retired from coaching in twenty five years' time, Ethan will probably still be the best boy to come out uh, along in an Ipswich jersey, and 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 he may surpass Caleb's achievements as the as the best boy to ever come out of our program. But you know, as an Ipswich player, big 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 Ched, big Lee was was a beast. 
you know, Esther's resume is is unparalleled. Luke, Sam, uh, you know, very special to me, to to real, you know, Hall of Famers, and uh, you know, no team I ever coach will be complete without Harriet Wellham. That team's going to beat that NBA team as well, Rob. If we can get the ball out of the problem is we've got Harriet and Sam on the same team, so there ain't any assists happening anytime soon. <laughs> I tell you, on that team, frankly, if Sam and Harry are on the court, Lee's going to be grumpy as hell running up and down the court because he ain't, he ain't getting the ball. Lee's going to be looking over at me moaning. Luke's just going to be running up and down the court, and Esther's going to be the only one. Esther's the only one playing any D on that team. <laughs> we've got plenty of talent left over to make a bench as well. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about the present back at the start of the interview with how we're trying to crawl back into some kind of normality with basketball actually occurring and training happening over the next few months, hopefully. Time to look ahead. And obviously, you have a couple of titles to defend this coming season. Maybe you didn't quite secure them in the way that I know you would have wanted to as a competitor, but you'll be defending WABL co-champions. You'll be defending NBL Division One Women's Champions. And it's a, a special season coming up for you for more reasons than just that. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, we've got a very talented generation of players that are going into their final season with the programme. Um, on the boys' side, you've obviously got Ethan in his last year. Um, and, and Ethan's been with the club since you know, he, he, he was in the youngest age group. And I think everybody who has watched that young man grow, obviously, obviously he's grown physically, but he's grown um, as, a, as, a, as a person, as a player into a back-to-back National Player of the Year, you know, probably the best player in the country of his generation. You know, and Ethan will be going off um, to play college basketball at the Division One level. We, he hasn't made a decision yet where, um, but you know, he's not short of offers. So, you know, we'll be saying goodbye to one of the great talents on the boys' side. And then, um, obviously, on the girls' side, you've got this, you know, I know this phrase gets sort of banded around, but this golden generation of girls spearheaded by Esther, who has been obviously so high profile and visible in the club uh, for many years now. But also Cameron, Taylor Willis, who has been an amazing servant to the programme, one of the most talented girls this club has ever produced. Um, and then Ella Pearson, who I think often, you know, because of Ella's sort of unassuming personality, uh, Ella, Ella's always sort of there as well, but necessarily grabbing the same headlines. But you know, Ella's been integral to that generation of players' success. And then obviously Charlotte's joined us and been a, an overwhelming success story, as has Becky. So there's five of them that are graduating on the girls' side. You know, I think I think we'd all agree that Esther's been the highest profile junior player in the club um, since she was 12 or 13 years old. You know, she... And Cameron, those two, and, and, and Ella in particular, you know, they, if they didn't make a Final Fours, it was a bad season as, as youngsters. They were going to Final Fours. You know, they finished national runners-up when, when Cameron was still in year nine and the rest of them were in year 10. The following year, they won the National Cup and they made Final Fours again and were then playing with the women's team as year 11. So as kids, they were babies. Esther was starting for the women in that in that historic season as a 16-year-old. As a and then, um, obviously, coming to the academy, they've won, in, the, in their two years so far at the academy together, they've won the under-17 English schools national title. They've won the under-18 national cup. They've won the WEABL, albeit, you know, in, 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 in sharing that with, with COLA as part of COVID. Unfortunately, we didn't get to play that final. And they've been awarded the Division One title. So, also won the three-on-three. I mean, Ipswich you know, used to be, we got, you know, everyone was pleased if we, you know, if we got to the final fours, that was a big celebration. Or if we made it to the final eight in the country. And this, this group of girls have really moved the goalposts. And, and this sort of, we expect to be the best. We expect Ipswich to be the best team in the country. And that, that group of girls have changed that mindset in our club. And it's no coincidence that, you know, the girls' team's, underneath them have followed that you know Kev took a, a really really good group of girls to, to, to within a whisper of the national title 
Um, I think under 16s we've done really well again this year. Obviously, you've got players like Susanna now, you know, yeah, emerging and making names for themselves, such as their success that 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 we're now getting the top players from other programs around the country uh, moving to Ipswich to play for us. And 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 for me on a personal level, that that generation of girls, that group of girls, really um, reignited my love for for coaching. Um, at a time where, and you know this very well, Rob, because you were my assistant, um, I was becoming a little bit disillusioned with my coaching career and uh, stumbled across this group of girls that I said, yeah, you guys, you guys look like, uh, you, you know, you, you need a bit of leadership and you look like you need a bit of support and a little bit of help and uh, I can do that. And next thing I know, we're all um, collecting medals together. So, um when when they go and when they move on, you know, a massive uh, part of me will go with them. And, uh, you know, I'll be very, very proud, but almost equally as, as sad as well, because I don't know if I'll ever have another group like them. That's really interesting. And I think one of the, the things that interests me about that and about your job is that you've had this um, experience that sort of reinvigorated your your passion for coaching over the last three years with this group of girls. They're moving on, and now you need um, essentially a new academy squad to build up in their wake, if you like. And this is something that I think people probably don't fully appreciate about the life of an elite level academy coach is that you're constantly regenerating and it must be at the same time, it must sort of invigorate you, but it, it must be hard when you've been particularly connected to a team or when you've been particularly successful with a group of players, then you have to go and build the next one and they need the same level of, of energy and the same level of leadership. Yeah. It's, um, I'll tell you this, Rob, uh, coaching is unbelievably lonely, unbelievably lonely. I'm spilling my guts here a little bit, but I think that, you know, it's, it's relevant, relevant. I say it's lonely because you invest, or certainly the way I coach, is you invest in these players beyond, you know, a nine-to-five job. I see these players more than I see my own kids in, in, in the season. I spend more time with them. I'm there for them as much as I'm there for my own children. They are... They really are family, and that—that's uh, not, you know, the hashtag family cliche that I know some people make fun of. I mean that I care for them in the same way that I would my own children, and then they leave, and that's what we want to do. I, I, it's quite a deranged um, job because the the better you are at your job, the more of them you lose. You know, and, and, and that that is, uh, I was talking to somebody on the phone last night and I said, it's a sick situation because if you do a good job, you don't see them again. You see them a couple of times a year. Um, if you do a bad job, you're, you're more likely to see more of them. Um, there's obviously exceptions to that. But um, so the, they make you incredibly proud and you feel like you're a huge part of their life and then suddenly, whack, you're not anymore. And then you realise that you still are. And that, that's when you kind of grow as a coach. And, and, and some of the players that I've coached that have moved on, I am in, still incredibly close to. I speak to a lot. I mean, Ash Pink's a really good example. Me and Ash speak a lot, you know, you know throughout the course of the year. And so you realise that you're just, you're extending that network and that group of people that mean so much to you. And, and, um, for me, when I say it's lonely, it's because you give so much of yourself to these people and you give so much of yourself to this sport that you actually lose connection with your normal friends, your day-to-day -day friends. Um, I don't see my mates very often. I don't begrudge it. You know, for the last 19 years, they've had to accept the fact that between September and, and May, I'm not around. And so they get used to not having me around. And, and the reason why I say it's lonely, Rob, is because... You, you do it for a period of time, then they move on, and then, like you say, you have to do it again. And for me, and perhaps this is why Alex Ferguson is my coaching hero, coaching idol, is it's about the next challenge. It's 
about the next challenge. It's about the next challenge. It's not about resting on your, your, your laurels and feeling sorry for yourself because let me tell you now, we ain't, we ain't ever getting an Esther Little, Cameron Taylor-Willis and Susanna Raffi in the same generation again anytime soon. You know, that ain't happening. So it's about what can we do with the next generation and what, what, what goals can we set them and how far can we drag them and, and how many of them can we get to a top-level university program or how many of them can we get working in, in professional sport or working in, in, in you know, in basketball. Um, and, and, and the reason why I say it's lonely, <clears throat> excuse me, is because, um, you know, you're there all day and everybody needs you and everybody wants you. And you go there on a Saturday and everybody's got a question and everybody wants to buy you a drink. And then often, boom, the season finishes and there's nothing. And, and that's quite, um, you have to get used to that. I'm, I'm been doing this for long enough now that I'm quite experienced and I'm, you know, you, 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 you know, Got a lot of you got a lot of friends at certain times of the year, and and very few at certain other times of the year. And you know, as you get older and more experienced, you learn to appreciate your 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 family and your your children and your wife and these types of things. And that's probably a little you know, very deep um, for for the Basketball Club podcast. But I also think it's important that people understand. And that's not just for me. I think it's really important that our our members and our people in our club understand that our volunteer coaches. They have their day job and they work really hard and work really long hours and then they go and give up God knows how many hours for basketball as well. So these people are sacrificing enormous time, money often, you know, time away from their loved ones to give back to this sport. And it's just, a, it's just incredible really. And I've waffled and, and ranted there a little bit, Rob, but it's, um, you know, for me, I'm extremely excited about the next generation. But one of, the, one of the exciting bits about that is then having to look, we're very fortunate, I can look down the club and I can look at players that we've got in our under-14s and I can look at players that we've got in our under-16 under girls team. And our under, you know, I, I could name three or four players right now that I, I'm excited about. And I'm like, yeah, that might be the next one, you know. That might be the next one. And that's great fun. And that's... And, and when I start to get itchy feet or I start to get a little bit bored or I start to get a little bit frustrated, that's when maybe I'll, I'll coach a different team or I'll coach a different age group for the club. Really interesting now that we're on to that topic that it's Alex Ferguson who springs to mind for you. Alex Ferguson obviously managed three clubs in a 40-year managerial career. And it's interesting to me that you'd pick him, not say uh, Pep Guardiola who's just as intense, just as successful, but has moved clubs every three or four or five seasons. But, but Pep Guardiola, Rob, has moved from Barcelona to Bayern Munich to Manchester City. He had the biggest budget and he had the best players wherever he went. That's, Alex true. Ferguson, That's true. Alex Ferguson made Manchester United the biggest club in the world. And then every time a pretender came in, and they may have got a title or two off him, but then he, then he got them back. Then he came back at them and he came back at them and he came back at them. And I think, well, I would never compare myself to, to the, the great Alex Ferguson. One of the things that, that, that stimulates me as a coach, because I'm unapologetically competitive uh, and I'm unapologetically proud of how big and successful Ipswich has become. And one of the things that drives me is uh, so you guys think the women's team's only good because we have Harriet Wellham scoring 32 points a game. Right, well, watch this. And our, our girls are going to win the junior competition without Harriet. And you guys think that our boys' team was only good because we had Lee Green in all those years ago before he became Lee Hodges. Well, look, here's what's going to happen. And we're going to take another team to the final fours and another team to the final fours. And that really motivates me, you know, to find the next one, to find the next team, to find the next coach you know you know we've produced some fantastic coaches over the years and every time you know people have said to me often over the years you know well that player when that player leaves our, our boys team's not going to be very good next year that's called coaching that's called coaching right there we've got to figure it out we've got to figure out a way that we're gonna we're gonna bounce back we ain't gonna replace ethan but but what we can do is we can we can develop 12 boys to be really good players and and and, and that's that 
that's the challenge. Keeping Ipswich at the top is a real mouth-watering prospect for me. And of course, it would be remiss of us to talk about changes that are happening for the upcoming season without talking about one of the biggest departures around the team. You're going to be working without your long-time team manager, Terry Rigby, this year after the best part of a decade working together. I am. I am. And I'm um, terribly sad about it, Rob. Uh, Terry is an incredibly dear friend and somebody who means a great deal to me. You know, and, and, and you know, it's kind of a, a reality check for me of how much the club has changed over the, the 19 years that I've been involved. And, and Terry is the, you know, A, he's the last of a group of people that kind of really hoisted it up to the level it is at now. Because um, Terry was part of that generation that included Catherine, Sarah Lodes, obviously Lorraine, Liz, Nick Newman, Pav. You know, Terry was a was a you know a real key cog in the wheel back in those days, and he's you know the last one other than myself um, still around. You know, but more importantly for me personally is. Uh, we wouldn't have achieved any of the things we've achieved over the last seven or eight years without Terry. And Terry, to me, has been a, an incredible, an incredible member of staff, an incredibly loyal person to have by my side through all the ups and all the downs. Obviously, working together for so long, it, you you build a pretty special friendship and a pretty special relationship on a, in a sort of working sense as well. If you, I mean, obviously volunteering, but. Uh, yeah. Working together every weekend for uh, for however many years, you get a very good understanding of how each other's characters work. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty uh, up and down as a, as a personality, as a coach, um, and Terry's always known how to how, how to handle me and how to get the best out of me. Um, we always talk um, when we talk to players. We always talk about the importance of knowing your role. We always talk about the importance of, you know, the guy that dives on the loose ball and, and, and wins you an extra possession or the player that gets you an offensive rebound out of nothing or the guy that takes a charge. They are just as important as the player that scores 20 points and gets their name in the newspaper. And, and I've always felt that Terry and I were the perfect combination because I, yes, would be the, the loud voice on the sideline and this big sort of, uh, you know, loud mouth presence probably on, on around the, the, the team. Uh, and that was complemented perfectly by this this unassuming guy that that didn't need or crave that sort of, you know, that, that demanding personality, I guess. And, and uh, Terry's understanding that he played an enormous part in making sure that the players and the coaching staff performed at their optimum. And he understood that that was his job. And in uh, in taking that role so seriously and being so professional with that role, it added a, a layer of professionalism to our team that I've not seen on any other team we've come up against uh, over the years. You've had the opportunity to coach regional teams, uh, elite development teams. You've had two experiences of coaching internationally, Hoops Fix All-Star Classics, etc., uh, that you've coached in as well. I don't doubt that there would have been the offer there at some stage to go and coach other teams. Maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing, at the BBL level or at university level. What is it that, that has kept you? I mean, you've kind of answered it now, but what is it, I suppose, about Ipswich that, that drives you year in, year out to keep going? Um, it's a great question. I have had several offers over the years to leave Ipswich. I've had offers to go and coach um, overseas. I've had offers to coach uh, professionally in this country, I've I've been approached about starting academies in, you know, bigger cities. I've always said that my career goals changed the day I became a dad. Prior to becoming a, a, a dad, like a lot of young coaches in their twenties, I you know I wanted to go coach overseas. I wanted to learn my craft in another country and 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 really, you know, really challenge myself to be this what, what level can I get to how good can I be and then I became a dad uh, I married the woman of my dreams and you realise that we live in an absolutely uh, beautiful part of the country in one of the uh, richest most powerful countries in the world and you think if I could make this work right here 
if I can earn a living doing this right here in my hometown, then I get to raise my family where I grew up, which is this beautiful countryside uh, you know, town and surrounding area. So th th there was that element. You know, my, my family are, are, are Ipswich and Suffolk based, so, so Naomi, my wife's. So there was an element of, I don't want to be away. I don't want my family. I want my children to grow up not knowing their cousins and only seeing their grandparents at Christmas and you know, in the summertime. I, I want my children and my family to, to, to be Suffolk people, you know, and grow up in, in the Ipswich area. The second uh, thing is that having been as influential as I've been fortunate to be in the emergence of Ipswich as a powerhouse program nationally it would take a hell of an offer to take me away from this place because um, I've created a demand for what I'm good at in my hometown if I was to go somewhere else there would be the risk element of not being as good and not there not being the demand not being as successful um, and then what happens if it doesn't work Let's say I got offered a job in Birmingham to go and run Birmingham basketball and, and realising that running a, uh, you know, a club in a city with 10 times the population of Ipswich is incredibly different to, uh, to being in the, in, yeah, in the Suffolk countryside because, um, you know, BBC Birmingham might not be as, as, as eager to interview the, the, you know, the, the basketball coach, <laughs> you know, in, in, a, in a city with, God knows how many professional football teams as 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 Ipswich are, and and you know Ipswich Basketball Club has become a big deal locally, a really big deal. We we're the highest profile sports club outside of Ipswich Town Football Club. I'd like to think I've played a small part in in that success. And the third thing is this, Rob, and and people may take this one way or another. I think I'm pretty good at what I do, and that level of satisfaction I get from seeing people be successful and achieving amazing things and for me to be able to feel like I contributed in a, in a small way to that person's success in my hometown able to do it with people in this club who are just some of the most remarkable people I've ever met and giving people that, that have so much love and care and affection for for what we've built you know so when a, when when a player goes off to university in the states or when a player decides to go to university in the uk or when a player decides like harriet to not go to university but just to start her coaching career at the age of 20 or when someone like beth catchpole goes away to university stops playing basketball but becomes a physio and then comes back and works for our academy to be able to feel like you've played a part in these people is is quite a thrill. And that's better than any medal, and that's better than any trophy, and that's better than any paycheck that you get for doing this, is, you know, we've created a demand for what Ipswich Basketball is all about, and I'm fortunate enough to have been a, uh, a part in that demand and so seeing people use what we've built as a platform for them to go and be successful is pretty inspirational. And I'm not sure I'd get that anywhere else. I can't think of many better places to leave it, Nick. Well, there you go, Rob. I've, 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 that, that, so, so unless someone comes in and offers me a couple of, couple of hundred grand a year, um, <laughs> you know, um, you're stuck with me for the time being. I think that's the perfect place to leave it, Nick. Thank you very much for giving us the time to speak to the IBC podcast, even after obviously feeling a little bit sore about losing to me at golf today and, and give us some of the insight on the emotions and the, the psychology of coaching at the elite level. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Rob. 2020 has been some kind of year, hasn't it? We lost, we lost the great Kobe Bryant and then you know, coronavirus hit and shut the entire world down for six months and then I lose a game of golf to a guy that raised 20 million quid walking up and down his garden. So, um, what's next, eh, mate? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, good.
got me again. Nick, thank okay. you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Rob.